Winston Churchill was the Prime Minister of Britain during the 1940s and 50s, and many people knew him as the last lion of Britain. It was kind of a nickname that he was given because of his uh, ability in regard to speaking. The guy knew how to give a speech. But it was a nickname that I don't think Churchill ever felt really comfortable with. In fact, in one speech, he talked about it this way. He said, I am not the lion of Britain. The people of Britain are the lion of Britain. My job is simply to provide the roar. I love that because I think it produces a mentality that, for me, challenges me every day as a leader. That when I think about who Grace Fellowship is, I'm a pastor at Grace Fellowship Church in Atlanta, Georgia, seven campuses in the, or six campuses in the Atlanta area, seven in Washington, the seventh is in Washington, D.C. And I just this last week was sitting in the middle of our Grace Leadership Summit, hundreds of churches from, hundreds of, of leaders from all of the churches around. And I was reminded again that, that Grace is not any one leader. Grace is the people. The movement of grace is the people of grace. That as pastors and leaders in this room, with whatever we're leading, the power of what we're leading is not who is sitting at the leadership table, but the empowerment of the people beyond that table. I have to remember that because sometimes I have that Elijah, 1 Kings 19 syndrome, where I feel like I'm the only one moving been very zealous for the Lord my God, and I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. But the truth is, in your church, in my church, there are everyday ordinary people like Sean waiting to be empowered, trying to move, needing to be seen, not simply as a cat, but as a lion. And that brings us to the second idea, and that's because Oftentimes as a pastor, I don't know about you, but I feel like I'm shepherding cats. Just trying to get the cats to move in a certain direction, to accomplish some things. But as a leader who is learning to see my people as the lions that they are, it also changes me as a leader to not spend my time shepherding cats, but instead feeding lions. So how do we think about doing that as church planners, church leaders, ministry leaders? What are the things that we face on an everyday basis that keep us from those things? I want to present a couple things here on the board, and then we're going to get to the actual presentation here in just a moment. But as a pastor and leader, I want to put a little diagram up here in regard to two funnels that as a pastor and leader, I'm constantly thinking about. The first funnel of a church is the funnel that looks like this. It goes, you could say it just kind of from the crowds to the few. It's an engagement funnel and is a funnel that we find in the Western church especially, often because Peter Drucker had a conversation with some megachurch pastors that basically said this, you need to know who... Um, your people are, who your target market is, you need to know what their needs are, and you need to meet those needs. Now, that's not a bad thing. You find this in Jesus's ministry. Jesus had a healing ministry. Jesus had a preaching ministry. Jesus worked the funnel from the crowds to the few. The pipeline, however, that drives this kind of funnel looks like this. You tell me whether this is familiar to you or not. The pipeline that drives it is that we got to create converts that become volunteers that serve. And we create programs that need to be facilitated by the converts that become volunteers that serve. It's a funnel that we could talk about as a funnel of, of, of ministry engagement. 
We're trying to engage people and drive them in a certain direction. It's a lot of the herding cats kind of stuff that we do as ministers. We're trying to get people engaged. However, if this is the only funnel in our churches, I want to suggest that it leads to what I'd call ministry exhaustion. Because there's always more needs and more people and more things that have to be launched greater tasks to accomplish, and before you know it, you find yourself worn out on the treadmill of just trying to recruit more volunteers to do more things. In fact, I would suggest to you, if it's the only funnel going on in the church, um, this is a volunteer drain pipe. The other funnel works a little bit differently. The other funnel starts with the few and works its way to the crowds. You see this in Jesus' ministry. He has the three, he has the 12, he has the 72, he has the 120. And this pipeline is built not just on converts that become volunteers but serve, but this pipeline is built on making disciples, not just converts, that become leaders, not just volunteers, that become missionaries, not just servers. It's a leadership pipeline. Jesus worked both of these funnels. If this is ministry exhaustion on the left, I would suggest to you that this is ministry ignition on the right. If over on the left, as a leader, this funnel here utilizes the skills of influence... This funnel over here is about learning the skills of impact. Influence is what happens when everyone is gathered. Impact is what remains once everyone is scattered. Influence is what happens when everyone is gathered. Impact is what remains once everyone is scattered. For the first 10 years of my ministry, literally what I was trained in in seminary were the the skills of influence. To build the funnel and to create the teaching and to do the works. And it's all good stuff. Jesus does this. But when I left the ministry there, you just kind of saw it just kind of dwindle down. The last 10 years of my ministry, I've been learning the skills of impact. How to invest in the three, that invest in the 12, that invest in the 22, that invest in the crowds. But I want to be a minister that uses the skills of both influence and impact at the things that God's called me to do, and I think you do too. The truth is, in your church, especially in a Western context, these two funnels are there. So the question is this, how are you intentionally thinking about those things? And if you're like me, the draw of this funnel over here and the needs of this funnel over here can be so demanding that you never, you never get to building this funnel over here out. But if you're going to have impact in your city, you're going to have impact in your county, you're going to have impact in your state, I would suggest to you that Jesus knew the impact of his ministry was what he did over here in this funnel, not what he did in this funnel. He wanted to run the programs effectively so that he could build, or efficiently, so he could build disciples effectively. Because if this is about programs on the left, then this is about processes over here on the right. So how are you thinking about that as a pastor and leader? How are these two funnels working their way out in your ministry? And how are you beginning to bridge the gap between these things so they're not in competition with each other, but instead it looks more like this in your church, where they're working with each other and for each other and serving each other. This is a challenge for all of us. Um, I was uh, the U.S. team leader for an organization called 3DM for five years. We were helping churches 
um, think about how to make disciples that become leaders that are sent out on mission. We were building disciple-making cultures in uh, churches across the country and leading missional communities. We were part of the missional conversation, but I would suggest to you that the biggest you know, regret that I have in the missional conversation, I think was, a, was actually um, not, not the right position to take, is that oftentimes in the missional conversation, if in the church growth conversation they basically say this is the only funnel that you need, then in the missional conversation we basically said this is the only funnel you need and we need to put an X on this funnel right here. And I would suggest to you, actually, in a Western context, you need to work both funnels. you got to work both funnels. And in Jesus' ministry, you see Jesus working both of these funnels. And so for me, the things we're going to talk about today came because as we were helping people build out processes on the right side of of the board, we kept getting stuck at about the second or third generation. We had disciple-making tools and missional tools that we were passing to people, but about the third or fourth generation in a church, they kind of got stuck. And so a few years ago, I was trying to solve that question. Will Mancini, who's the co-founder of Unique, uh, with myself as well, was trying to think about personal clarity. And what I began to realize is that part of what was missing from our conversation in building disciple-making cultures and releasing missionaries is that we hadn't engaged a personal sense of calling. And so at the first and second generation of your church, you can give people disciple-making tools because even if they don't have an articulated sense of calling, they have an intuitive sense of calling. But once you get to generation three and four, beyond the staff, beyond the leaders, all of a sudden you're handing people disciple-making tools and they have no idea why you're handing them to them. And at best, they end up replicating a curriculum but not really making disciples. And so for us, the way that we have begun to see that conversation unlocked is that part of bridging the gap from one funnel to the next funnel is by igniting the conversation of personal calling within every believer. Because once someone understands what God's called them to do and are beginning to design their life, now they know the mandate to which they are calling other disciples to follow them into. And now the disciple-making tools make sense because the individual has been given and understands their special sense of calling. In other words, here's what I'm trying to say. As pastors and leaders, our vision is powerless unless we are empowering every believer to reach the vision that God placed in them. So we've been thinking about this, and we wanted to invite you into this kind of thing today. We gave you the book, um, so that is your book to take home. I'm also going to give you another gift before you leave today that is an online course that you will have the opportunity to go through free of charge if you want to, to just give you a taste of what's happening. But before we do any of that, I'd love to just give you a little taste of the process and to set a little bit of the biblical foundation. So you've got some worksheets there on your table. I want you to go ahead and take those around your table. We're going to work on this worksheet a little bit today. We'll play around with a few tools and uh, have some fun. And hopefully just set the biblical mandate for how important personal calling is in igniting a movement of believers. October 13th, 2010 was a day that many of us will never forget. Just 69 days earlier, a significant cave-in at the Golden Copper Mine had left 33 Chilean miners trapped 2,300 feet below the surface. We would find in the days and months ahead that this was A troubled mind that literally in the past 21 years, eight people had already died. But in this moment, it looked like it would be the most tragic moment in the mind's troubled history. Immediately, the search and rescue workers were brought in to see if anyone could have survived the cave-in. 
Eight drill bits were drilled into the mine to try and make contact uh, with anyone who might have made their way to the shelter. And 17 days into that search and rescue, on one of those drill bits came a letter that in bright red letters said this, we are well in the shelter, signed the 33. It was one of those moments where the mindsight just began to celebrate, to think that somehow these guys had survived the cave-in and were waiting to be rescued. Immediately, the joy began to spread beyond the mindsight to the whole country of Chile. Every resource in the country was focused to figure out how could we go down and rescue these guys. Word spread beyond Chile into all over the world, and literally countries all over the world began to give resources and focus energy on rescuing these guys. At the U.S. here in NASA, we got involved trying to figure out how do you go down and get these guys without the whole mine falling in on them. And 69 days into that search and rescue, it was one of those moments that if you remember, it was like the whole world stopped and focused on the mine. Every television station was tuned to this moment. It seemed like everyone was just stopping what they were doing. We watched that first guy get out of that pod capsule that they had sent down, and he got out, and he kissed the ground, and he hugged his family, and he thanked God. And it was one of those moments where it just felt really good to be a human being, to think that we could figure out how to go down and get these guys and to bring them back above the surface. And one by one, in 90-minute to 120-minute intervals, one by one, all 33 Chilean miners were brought back above the surface. When the 33rd Chilean miner was brought back above the surface, the paramedics who had gone down to uh, check on the guys held up a sign that said this, Mission Accomplished. Again, it was just one of those things that just felt really good to be a human being. The guys began to give their interviews on all the nightly news stations. They talked about how they survived 48 hours a time with uh, a teaspoon of tuna. They talked about the mental anguish. And for a while, their stories were captured on the front pages of the newspapers and blogs. They were on the front and center of the nightly news. But gradually, their stories began to fade to the back pages of the press and out of the news altogether. A year later, CNN went to check on the miners and see how they were doing. Some of the miners were doing okay, but several of them were struggling, as you can imagine. One guy had been arrested for domestic violence. Several, as you can imagine, were dealing with panic and anxiety disorders. There was one guy who was building a wall around his house, and he had no idea why he was doing it. The question that CNN raised a year later was this. It actually headlined the article, Do the Miners Need a Second Rescue? Because even though they were rescued from death, What they were struggling with was adjusting into life. That they knew how to be rescued from death, but they didn't really know how to live. I bring that up this afternoon because I think it paints a picture of where so many of the people that we lead find themselves. Oftentimes where we find our own selves. We know how to be rescued from death with God. But we don't know really how to live. The reason I know that that's true is because I know a lot of people today who know how to live forgiven, but very few people who know how to live free. We all know how to live forgiven, but we we struggle really learning to live free. Now, when I talk about freedom, I know i got to redefine that because we live in a world today that believes freedom is the ability to do anything you want to do. Can I tell you, freedom is not the ability to do anything you want to do. Freedom is the capability of becoming who you were always destined to be. Let me say that again. Freedom is not the ability to do anything you want to do. If that's freedom, I know a lot of people who do anything they want to do that find themselves in incredible captivity. 
Freedom is not the ability to do anything you want to do. Freedom is the capability of becoming who you were always destined to be. In other words, what I'll suggest to you is that it's the second half of the gospel, so to speak, that yes, the gospel comes and it delivers me from sin, but the second part of the gospel is that it sets me free to become who God has always destined me to be. So we talk about gospel-centered life design. These are the kinds of things that we're talking about, and it's the kind of things that fills Paul's language in Ephesians chapter 2, and this is really the verse the whole process is just really built on. Ephesians chapter 2, remember, whenever you're looking at an epistle, uh, the primary question of every letter or epistle is this, what's it mean to be Christian? Because no one knows. People have had Jesus experiences, and they're trying to figure out what to do with that. And there are really two options on the table. Do you have to become a Jew, or can you just stay a Gentile? How do you deal with this? And Paul and John and the other writers of the New Testament are writing to articulate What's it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And it's why often in Paul's writings, in his epistles, he orients his entire book from a retelling of the gospel because he wants this to be character formation in people, not simply behavior modification. And so he's retelling the gospel as a gospel-centered idea that, that, that actually impacts the way that we live, work, and play. And so in Ephesians chapter 2, he's retelling the gospel. Listen to this. Verse 1, it says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us were living among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. So he's just, he's just describing the cave-in that has been all of our lives. And here's the first part of the gospel, verse 4. But because, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins. So he's saying that God came to us in the middle of our cave-in, and he rescued us from ourselves. He forgave our trespasses. And he continues to talk about that. But in verse 10... He shifts to the second part of the gospel. Well, let's go back and get verse 8 because it's too good not to read. For it's by grace you have been saved through faith and not from yourselves. For it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And here's the second part of the gospel, verse 10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. In other words... Paul shifts to the second part of the gospel, and in the second part of the gospel, he says, not only have you been forgiven, but part of what the gospel does is it sets you free to become who God's always destined you to be. He says, we are God's workmanship. The Greek word there is poema. It's where we get the word poem from. It's God's highest work of art, he says, and clarifying that highest work of art, he says this, created to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. In other words, here's one of the ways that you could interpret that verse. God's been having a dream about your life from the beginning of time. That long before you came into existence, you were in God's imagination. And part of what the gospel does, it doesn't just forgive us of our sins, it sets us free. It recovers the God dream, so to speak. That the gospel recovers the God dream and sets us free to become who God has always destined us to be. Which means discipleship is not simply about just doing what Jesus did or becoming who Jesus was. Well, I love the way that Dallas Willard talks about it. He says it this way. Discipleship is about becoming who Jesus would be if he were you. Discipleship is not just about doing what Jesus did. It's about becoming who Jesus would be if he were you, if he had your nine to five, if he was married to your spouse, if he had your strengths, your weaknesses, who would Jesus be? So in other words, Jesus is our savior for that life. Jesus is our imitative model. We're going to imitate Jesus. 
But here's the great thing. As you imitate Jesus, you actually become the best version of yourself. Think about this. Maybe when you get to heaven, let me say it kind of challengingly. Maybe when I get to heaven, the question that God's going to ask me, the question he's going to ask you is, not Dave, why were you not more like Jesus? Maybe the question that God's going to ask me is, Dave, why were you not more like Dave? Not the broken version of Dave that you're acquainted with, but the thing that's been in God's imagination from the beginning of time. The thing that he's been dreaming about your life from the beginning of time. So Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is our imitative model. But the goal is not just to become a Middle Eastern man from 2,000 years ago. For half the people in this room, they're biologically challenged in that. It's to become who Jesus would be if he were us through a process of surrendering. I love the way that one Presbyterian pastor says it this way. He says, you can only surrender as much as you know about yourself to as much as you know about God. You can only surrender as much as you know about yourself to as much as you know about God, which means the Christian life is about learning more and more about who I am and learning more and more about who God is and living at the continual surrender of surrendering more and more of who I am to more and more of who God is. And as I do so, I become more and more and more of who God designed me to be. So on your paper, you've got a little tool here we call the clarity spiral. And this tool is built to help you begin to to take this journey. We ask the question with this tool, what does the stunning clarity, what does does the journey to stunning clarity look like? And we would all love the journey to stunning clarity to look like this, just a straight line from A to B, right? But the truth is the journey to clarity in your life oftentimes looks like this. It's a drilling down or a walk up a mountain, so to speak. It's why in your spiritual life, you'll often deal with the same things over and over again. Like the same way when you drive up a mountain, you see the same scenery over and over again, but you see it from higher and higher elevation. So you deal with your identity at 500 feet, but then you're going to deal with your identity at 1,000 feet, and you're going to deal with it at 1,500 feet, you're going to deal with it at 2,500 feet. Same things that you're seeing, but from greater and greater, higher and higher elevation. So what we're saying is this, what if the God dream in your life, what if the God dream in every believer's life is both knowable and nameable? What if we could know that dream, we could name that dream, we could start living into that dream, then it means that the process to naming that probably looks like this this drilling down or this walk up a mountain. What we're saying in that journey is that there are four big imperatives that we have to face right at the beginning of the journey if we're going to be people who step out into the waters with God. First one is this. You can write these down on your worksheet. Uh, It's the courage to know. We'll go back to a couple of them and spend some time with them. You have to have courage to know yourself and courage to know God. Do you really want to know yourself and do you really want to know God? Big question we have to continue to ask ourselves. Second, experience to grow. Everything in our life is a potential learning experience. How are you allowing the past to help shape the future? How is your past with God shaping your future with God? Do you even understand what God's done in the past in order to create and shape the future? Number three, value to show that it's your life. You've got to take ownership for it. It's not your boss's job to make sure that you live with stunning clarity with your life. Your boss probably just wants you to get some things done. But you've got to take ownership for this. It's your journey with God. And finally, risk to go. That sometimes there's a moment where you got to step out in faith even though it doesn't make sense. Now the process of getting to the center looks like this. Uh, it starts with inventory. you got to inventory your life. What, God's, what is God doing? Who am I? What are the unique gifts, talents, and abilities God's given to me? What's unique about my story? you got got to inventory that. Then you've got to interpret that inventory. You've got to say, what's it mean? Not just what is it, but, but what's, it, what's it mean? After you interpret it, you've got to inscribe it. You've got to name it. So much power in naming things. It's everything, as a consultant, when I go into an organization, 
Uh, I can tell you this, it's everything in the organization that has not been named that is ruling and reigning over that organization. When God discharges authority and power, power to Adam and Eve, he said, I want you to name the animals. And so when we live our lives with things unnamed, those things are usually ruling and reigning over us. It's all the conversations in that organization that everyone's having that no one's talking about that are ruling and reigning that organization. And part of what a leader does is they step up and name it because if you can name it, you can begin to shape it or change it. Same thing is true in our lives as individuals. It's all the stuff that's gone unnamed that oftentimes is ruling and reigning us. So we've got to move from interpretation to naming it because if we can name it, we can shape it. If we name it, we can begin to change it. Finally, we begin to implement. This is important for us because oftentimes when you go take an Enneagram assessment or you go take a Myers-Briggs assessment, oftentimes you move straight from A to D. You get the inventory that you try and implement. But the discipleship part of the process is actually in the interpretation and inscription. So this doesn't become just simply behavior modification. It becomes character formation. So you want to play just a little bit before we go today? Let's play with a little bit of these tools. Um, I want you to find one person that is around your table. Um, we're going to talk about some things, and then I want you to have a conversation with that person right away. So pick out a partner around your table that's going to be your partner. Go ahead, just introduce yourself to them if you haven't done that already. We're going to play for a few moments. All right, so we're going to go back in. Now that you've introduced yourself, um, we're going to go back into each of these imperatives. We're going to do a little teaching. Then I'm going to give you a tool to have a conversation with, all right? So the first one is this, the courage to know. Benjamin Franklin said there are three hard things in life, steel, diamonds, and to know oneself. Do we have courage to know ourselves? And part of the courage that it takes is the realization that there are at least five different versions of me that are competing with who God created me to be. Think about this for a moment. There is the me that everyone expects me to be. So much of our life is built on the expectations of others, right? Someone expects you to be a certain way and become a certain thing. Will talks about when he was in fourth grade, he came home in, uh, with a C in science. His dad was a chemical engineer, and his dad sat him down on the couch and said, you are a Mancini, and Mancinis do not make C's in science. He said, well, guess who started making straight A's in science? Next thing you know, he is at Penn State in a chemi chemical engineering class going, how in the world did I get here? Because the expectations of others looms large. As pastors and leaders, the expectations of others looms, looms large in our lives. Not just the expectations of others. There's the imitation of success, the me that's sexiest to be. It's the me that I want to project myself to be. It's the Instagram, Facebook version of me that's in competition with who God's called me to be. There's the captivation of money, the me that they pay me to be. Can I just tell you, if you don't become who you're created to be, you'll become whatever people pay you to be. You just become that version of yourself that people pay you to become. Number four, the preoccupation with activity, the me that, that time makes of me. Just in the hurry, and, and, and her, time makes a certain version of me. And finally, the projection of self, it's the me that I want to be. This is really dangerous in our society because we live in a culture that says you can be anything you want to be. Can I tell you, you can't. I may want to be the defensive tackle for the Pittsburgh Steelers, but at 170, 5'8", it's not happening, right? But we live in this world where we tell everyone you can be anything you want to be. And this is what the kind of American Idol syndrome is. You watched American Idol, right, where people show up and they're convinced they're going to be American Idol. And, and then all of a sudden they open their mouth and it becomes obvious to everyone but them that they're not going to be the, the American Idol. And the judges start to tell them this and they're like, they start crying. No, you don't understand. This is my destiny. Have you ever been around someone that tries to bless you with the skills and talents they don't have? And abilities? Because we have this, this sense that we can be anything you want to be. 
But what we're saying is this, that, that there's a me that God created me to be. And if you could see who God's created you to be, all these other five versions of you would pale in comparison to that. But we get sucked into all these other versions of ourselves. So here's the tool that I want to introduce you to that will help you with that. Um, we call this the ultimate awareness matrix. That when we think about our lives, we want to live with a sense of high God awareness and a sense of high self-awareness. But oftentimes in Christianity, we have one or the other and not both. So we often, it's all about me or, you know, it's all about God, but it's not about this journey of God and me. So for instance, uh, when it's all about self-awareness, uh, it usually starts out as a healthy conversation about human responsibility and, you know, the sense that, that we have been, been put here for a purpose and you need to maximize your destiny. But if you're not careful, then God just becomes a genie in a bottle that if you rub the right way, gives you everything you ever wanted before you met God. And what it deteriorates into is a Christian form of narcissism where God exists for me and it's just about me and God just gives me everything I ever wanted before I met him. If there's no God awareness and no self-awareness, um, I call this being a teenage pop star. <laughs> Every teenage pop star, no God awareness, no self-awareness. I'm just kidding. Uh, what this determ what actually this becomes is a, is a form of nihilism where everything is meaningless. If you don't think this is making a comeback, just turn your radio on. The meaninglessness of our society. However, if you have a high sense of God awareness but low sense of, of self-awareness, usually this starts as a great conversation around God's sovereignty and, and the way that God is all-powerful and amazing and huge. And all those things are true, right? All those things, they're not inaccurate, right? They're just inadequate in the whole conversation. And so what ends up happening is that you start deflecting all your stuff into God so it's all about God and you don't even deal with yourself. And what it usually turns into is a Christian form of fatalism. I've picked this up around our church all the time where people just say, well, if it's meant to happen, it was going to happen. And if it does happen, God meant it to happen. And it'll just be, and it was supposed to be. And really, that's more fatalistic than it is Christian. But what God is inviting us into is high God awareness, high self-awareness. It's a co-creationism. In, in the, the Genesis language, it's God who creates and man who makes, in the Hebrew words. So God is the only one who can create out of nothing, but man is invited to take what God has created and to make different kinds of things with it. In Jewish theology, they would call this a theology of partnership, where they would say it this way, God is not dependent on us, but neither has he chosen to act independent of us. In other words, God's heart for a nation always runs through the heart of a person. That he's inviting us to co-create with him, to become more aware of him and more aware of us, so that we live at the intersection of surrendering more and more of who I am to more and more of who he is. So here's my question for you. Where are you at on this matrix right now? And where did you go to get there? For me, I grew up in a Christian form of Christianity that, that was way more fatalistic than it was anything. We just kind of put everything onto God, and we didn't really deal with ourselves. I remember when I, when I tore my knee up for the second time playing soccer, I was being told the message, well, God just wants you in ministry, so he's taking out your knee. Spent some time down in the narcissistic place, hopefully moving up in the top right-hand right quadrant. So think about where you're at right now on this matrix. Turn to your neighbor, that your partner, and just kind of share. Where, where are you at and what other quadrants? What other quadrants other than the top right have you found yourself in? All right, go a little two, three-minute conversation with your neighbor. Go ahead and do that. All right, let's go a little bit further here. Let's go to imperative two. I know you got much more conversation to have. Just showing you the kinds of conversations that can be stimulated with some of this stuff. But let's come back here to imperative number two. And let's talk about not just the courage to know, but experience to grow. What we're saying with this imperative is that everything in your life is a potential learning experience. But here's the deal. Experience, Howard Hendricks would say, is not the best teacher. Evaluated experience is the best teacher. 
In other words, if we're going to become who God's called us to be, it's not just that we have experienced our story, but the question is, have you interpreted it? Can I tell you, most people have experienced their story, but few people have interpreted their story. Even fewer can articulate your story. And here's the problem. If you've experienced your story but not interpreted your story, your past will determine your future. You'll go into the next chapter of your life, just kind of reliving the same cycles. The characters will change, but the storyline will be the same. Because you've experienced the past but haven't interpreted However, if you interpret the past, your past can fuel your future. Which means this, we can face our past because it reminds us that we are not confined by our worst decision or defined by our worst day. When we interpret the past, it becomes the fuel. Even the hardest moments of our life become the fuel in order to create the future that God has for us. But an uninterpreted story oftentimes just continues to recycle the same things over and over again. And so you move from one church to another church to another church to another church, and it's the same cycle over and over and over again. What we need is to interpret our story and to name our story. We give a little tool here. Um, We call it the bio line versus the impact line, saying that if you'll live your life in that kind of format, the impact of your life can constantly be on the increase. So think about this. I want you to think about this with your life right now. Um, on your lifeline, uh, the, the average life expectancy in the U.S. is 79.8 years, about 80 years. Within that, um, sociologists have identified a couple different breakpoints. At 40, you might know this one as the midlife crisis. So around 40, it's not exactly 40, could be 35, could be 45, could be 50, but right around that midlife kind of time, you start to ask the question, am I really doing what I was supposed to do? Today, um, sociologists have gone further and said that there's a, there's a quarter-life crisis. You get out of college, you get your degree, you start doing it, you're like, what in the world did I get a degree in? Like, what in the world's going on? <laughs> but the one that sociologists are giving a lot of time to today is this, you know, around 60, this three-quarter-life crisis. So now the kids are out of school, and they're going and living their own life, and you don't know who you are anymore. You're 20 in regard to time, but only you have resources now. You, you have resources to be able to do things, but, but, but do, you, do, you know, do you know what to do? And here's the problem is that in our society, uh, the idolatry of our society says that basically your bio line is your impact line. So if you think about your body at 20, you know, you're going uphill, you're peaking. By 40, you've peaked. At the back end of 40, you're on the downside of the mountain. I mean, I'm 45. I wake up sore in the morning. I didn't do anything the day before. (laughs) On the downhill of that kind of cycle. But here's the deal. In the world that we live in that idolizes youth, basically the lie that so many of us live under is if you haven't done it by the time you're 40, you're done. We feel that pressure. And really what we tell our people is, you know, uh, uh, in American society is really after 60, 65, you need to go and play because you're not necessary in life anymore. So you worked, and now you retire, and you just go play and get out of the way so we can do the things. But if you look at the Bible, how many people did their impact line go up in the last quarter of their life? Because of evaluated experience, what we're saying is that every stage, if you evaluate the experience, you could actually increase your impact. You don't have to simply live on that bell curve of the bio line, but instead, you can, you can live on the impact line. I got to tell you, as a pastor in church, this is huge for us. I got to tell you, we're 35 years old as a church. We've got a lot, we've got a whole generation that, that kind of grew up our church right here. And now all of a sudden are moving toward that last quarter of their life. And you know what the temptation for me as a pastor is? It's to try and talk them into doing everything they did in the previous quarter of their life. Hey, just keep doing what you were doing. But now they got grandkids all over the country and they're going to lay. Like, I want to suggest to you that would be the biggest disservice that I could do for them as a pastor. I would suggest to you this last quarter might be the biggest missional opportunity that we find ourselves in. 
But we have to equip our people as missionaries. They're going to be traveling. They're going to be doing this stuff anyway. Why not equip them as missionaries rather than just simply trying to guilt, shame, and fear them back into running our church? Because this is the only funnel that we have going. So let me ask you this question. You can kind of take some time at your table. What, what, what season of life are you transitioning into? Which one of these things is closest to you? Which one's in the rearview mirror and which one's right outside your windshield? Let me ask you this question. I want you to share it real quick at your table. What's the biggest lesson you learned from the last chapter of your life, the last quarter of your life that you're bringing into this one? All right, give it a quick, quick go, quick go. Extroverts go, extroverts go, extroverts go, extroverts go. All right, come back this way. Come back this way. I know we're just beginning to have conversations. I keep cutting us off, but I got to get you out of here on time as well, all right? So imperative number three, imperative number three, value to show. In other words, what we're saying is that you have to take ownership for this. And here's the deal. If you'll take ownership for your life, if you'll seek God with this, what we would promise you is you can get at least 10% convergence wherever you work or find yourself with who God's called you to be. At least 10% more convergence. Because here's the deal. Being who God's called you to be is the best thing you can be for your church or your company. But it's not their job to see it. It's your job to demonstrate that. You have to take ownership. If you'll take ownership for that clarity journey and you'll, you'll pursue clarity, but never at the expense of the organization and never at the expense of your direct supervisor, what you'll find is that over and over again, when you become who God created you to be, it's the best version of yourself, and people will actually start valuing that in ways that you get more opportunity to become it. Got a couple tools here we're not going to do because of time today. We talk about vocation, but you can find those things in the book. Here's what I want to end with. The last one is risk to go, because sometimes as God reveals to you who you are. It, it takes you out of harbor. John Shedd said it this way, a ship is safe in harbor, but that is not what ships were made for. And as God begins to reveal to us who we are, we can stay with those lesser versions of ourselves. but oftentimes there's a moment we've got to step out in faith. I love the tool here. It comes from Howard Hendricks. Howard Hendricks probably did more for Christian education than anyone else did in the past hundred years. And oftentimes when Hendricks would lead his seminary class, he would bring his seminary students, his men and women, into a whiteboard session, so to speak. And at the top of the whiteboard, he would draw this funnel and say, guys, these are all the things that you can do with your life. And the problem is that when you're successful, there's just more and more things that you can do. And then he would take and draw an X at the bottom of the funnel, and he would say, this, however, is the one thing you must do with your life. He would say, men and women, my biggest fear for you is not that you would succeed, but that you would succeed at all the wrong things. He said, most opportunities are distractions in disguise. And the journey of the risk to go is to say, in light of all the things that I can do with my life, what is the one thing that I must do with my life? What must you do? What must you do? So you don't get distracted in the can-dos. It's the journey Jim Collins would talk about from good to great. It's not the stuff that's bad. It's all the lesser goods that keep us from the great thing that God has dreamed of us. That's what the unique book is all about. It's what the process is all about. And it's what the process is built on to make available to every believer. One of our, our values is the church is the hero. We want to see a process multiplied through churches where the capital of doing this kind of investment stays in the local church. So instead of just doing it all on video where you press play, we train people, we train coaches and leaders within a congregation to build this out because what we want to happen is that when your church begins to help this happen, people walk away not saying, you know, Dave was a great trainer or Will was a great trainer or Kelly was a great trainer, but they walk away saying, I can't believe my church spent time training me in this stuff. 
So we've built our organization, not like, uh, I mean, we, we, I, we run financial peace at my place, and, and we love financial peace, but the truth is, when people go through financial peace, and we do the kind of click and play on Dave Ramsey, you know who walks away with the capital? Dave Ramsey walks away with the capital. They walk away thinking, Dave Ramsey can really help me with my stuff. But what if people in your church could help people find God's dream for their life and help them design their life? And what if in that experience in your church, they didn't walk away just thinking Dave could do this or Will could do it. They said, I can't believe my local church is investing in my vocational discipleship. Barna's already told us in Faith for Exiles that one of the five things it's going to take to create resilient disciples in the next season of ministry for Generation Z is this. You've got to be doing discipleship vocationally. You've got to connect on Sunday to Monday. So what if every believer was naming who God dreamed them to be? designing a life to step into it, moving from all the things they can do to the one thing they must do? What if the right side of the funnel was being built out and multiplied? What would happen in your church and what would happen in our communities? Well, here's the truth. I don't know, but I can't wait to find out. All right, so here's the deal. Um, thanks for letting me be here today. So much uh, fun being with you. I have such deep respect for HCPN and who you guys are. Will Mancini, the co-founder of Unique, was born out of this movement that you have in many ways. So um, he was at Clear Creek Community Church, and the ministry that's happened has happened because of what you guys are continuing to invest in. In that vein, we want to continue to give back to you. We gave you the book. If you'll go to our website, lifeunique.com backslash HCPN. So you got the address on there, just not the HCPN part of it. If you go to lifeunique.com backslash HCPN and you put your information in, you'll get a free access to our Find Your One Thing course. So you want to know how to move through this funnel? That's usually a $79 course we're giving to you guys for free. You've got the, also the free starter kit for free there. So you've got like over $100 worth of stuff for free. Part of that is just us saying thank you for being part of the foundation group that birthed who we are. Uh, but also, we just want to make this stuff accessible to as many people as possible. So if you put in lifeunique.com backslash HCPN, you put your email in there, we'll get you the code to give you free access to our course on that. What we really want to do is just continue to invite you into a disciple-making relationship. Um, and so if you are interested in learning more about this, we have an accelerator in Houston. It's on the back of your sheet there. We have an accelerator in Houston coming up. May 4th through 7th. You can see other places that we are around the country as well, but May 4th through 7th, we're going to be here in Houston. We'll want to make you aware of that. If you're interested in that, you can find all the stuff from our website as well. Uh, but here's the deal. Whether you do this stuff with us or you do it some other place or you create it yourself, in some ways it doesn't really matter to me. What matters to me is that you help people identify the God dream on their life. And you create a pathway, a process, a toolkit to help them access that and design their lives in greater ways than ever. Thank you guys so much for letting me be here. Chad, I think, has got some things to give us as final instructions. Mm -hmm.